Hello, everybody. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name's Amy Foster. Thanks for finishing this great study of Matthew with us. It's just a privilege to study these amazing words with you today. So before we get started, I want to ask you kind of a silly question. If you rummaged in your purse right now, how many of you are carrying a gift card? Are you? Oh, look at all those hands. Okay. The rest of you, do you know what a gift card is? Have you, have you used one before? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking the answer's right. Um, we're going to take a minute and, and consider how gift cards work. You take them to a real retailer, and it's like magic. You hand them over, and they pay the price, and you get something of great value, don't you? It's that handing them over, that, that process of... of turning in the gift card that's redeeming it. And I'm just going to confess something. Maybe I should be embarrassed by this. I think I'm a gift card hoarder. (laughs) I have a terrible time letting go of them and spending them. My husband gave me a sweet, generous uh, gift card to one of my favorite stores at Christmas. And it's April, and I haven't spent it yet. And you're thinking that's not so bad. I've shopped in that store twice since then. And I don't use the gift card. I just can't let go of it. And since I'm confessing, I have one from the Christmas before, too. (laughs) So it's no good if I don't redeem it. So why are we talking about gift cards? We're not. We're talking about redemption because redemption is a profound theological concept and we need to understand it because it's happening in these last chapters in Matthew today. I want you to understand it. Um, To redeem is to pay the price. During Jesus' day, it had um, an even narrower meaning. It was to purchase a slave for his freedom. It was to pay the ransom price. That's what redemption was. And once more, at the end of Jesus' earthly life, we see him doing the unexpected. He's doing something no king has ever done before or since. Jesus is redeeming his people and paying the price. He's not conquering them. He's redeeming on their behalf. And so what is that price? Each one of us has a sin price on our head, and we have that price on us because we all sin. We all fall short of God's perfect standard, and the price that God attaches to that is death. And for all of us, that means physical death, and it also means um, spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And so Jesus came as the only holy, sinless, perfect one to walk on the earth because he could be the only perfect sacrifice to pay sin's price on our behalf. That's redemption. That's what Jesus offers to each of us, and that's what he's doing. Now, as we study these chapters today, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit some of the text just to save time, but I encourage you to read along in your Bibles. I'm also going to fill in some things that we pick up from the other gospel accounts, so just give me that liberty, please. In these last chapters, Jesus is fulfilling his role as the king by redeeming his people, and I'm going to be honest with you, it's pretty painful to read and to focus on. And it's painful from the very beginning because we see that redemption begins with rejection. That started in what we studied last week in chapter 26. I'm just going to remind you a little bit. Jesus is praying in the garden and Judas arrives with soldiers and Judas betrays Jesus. 
Jesus is arrested. He's taken to the high priest home. He's tried. He acknowledges, yes, I am the son of God. And they immediately charge him with blasphemy and condemn him to death. You need to know that is the nation of Israel's official rejection of Jesus. The entire nation has now rejected their king. There's only one problem for the nation right now. The Jews at that time live under Roman rule. They don't have the authority to order this kind of a death penalty. They need the Roman rulers to cooperate if they want Jesus crucified. And that's what they want. Um, they want something severe and dramatic like crucifixion because they don't just want to kill Jesus. They want to stop his followers and ultimately they want to stop his message. So they're not stoning him quietly on the side. They're asking the Romans to cooperate in a great tragic spectacle. And doing these things, they are playing right into the sovereign plans of God. So begin reading with me. Uh, Matthew chapter 27 and when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So it had been a nighttime trial that the Jews has had, and that was contrary to Jewish law, so they need a perfunctory quick little trial here in the morning to make everything legal. That's what they do. And then they take Jesus to the Roman governor whose name is Pilate. We have an interesting little side note that follows after. Um, Judas, the betrayer, actually changes his mind. When he recognizes that Jesus is getting a death penalty, he recants his statement. He tries to confess. Um, his confession is ignored. In desperation, he takes those silver coins that they've paid him and he throws them into the temple. They bounce into the Holy of Holies, and the tragic story of Judas ends with him taking his own life. So pick the story up with me in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Okay, so it's Friday morning here, and Jesus is standing before Pilate, and he refuses to give an answer to the made-up charges. All the false charges that they've been trying to, to put against him, he will not answer those. He will only answer to the charge, are you the son of God? It's very clear Jesus is publicly declaring himself as the Messiah and the king in this moment. Now, what we see here is that everyone is operating from their own agenda. Pilate is in a terrible position here, and he has one goal, and I want you to remember this as we read this story. Pilate's goal is political self-preservation. You need to know that as the Roman governor over Jerusalem, his primary tasks were two things. He was to ensure that the tax revenue continues to flow freely to Rome, and he was to protect the peace in this area. Pilate has a pretty bad history of ruling this area in the past. He's had multiple blunders. He's already been called back to the emperor to account for some of those things. He's on shaky ground, and he can't handle another political mess here. The Jewish leaders have another goal. 
They want to distort Jesus' claim to be the king. They want to suggest that he's a threat to the emperor and a threat to Rome. But Jesus has already made it perfectly clear his is not a political kingdom. And Pilate is shrewd. He understands that it's envy that's motivating these religious leaders. So while he ponders all this and tries to figure out how he's going to come out uh, politically on top, it's as if his cell phone starts ringing and he recognizes Mrs. Pilate's uh, ringtone. And he answers the phone and she says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I've just had a dream. So can you imagine a husband making the biggest political decision of his life and his wife calls and says, here's how you need to handle it, honey. I've had a dream. But this was no ordinary dream. It was a haunting experience. It suggested divine judgment and wrath. Pilate is truly between a rock and a hard place. And so he tries to manipulate the crowd and extract himself from this decision. We know it was Passover and there was a custom for Roman leaders to pardon one criminal during the feast of the Passover, during the festival. They weren't doing that because they recognized the religious significance of the Passover. They were doing that to soften the Roman yoke. They were doing that to appease the Jewish population so that that tax revenue would continue to flow seamlessly. And so in a very theatrical way, Pilate goes to his judgment seat, the place where he would render a verdict. And instead of rendering a verdict, he presents to the people a rather unbelievable choice. He's going to let them choose who is being released. And he offers them Jesus, whose only charge is to claim that he's the son of God. And on the other side, he says, or you can have Barabbas. Now, we know that Barabbas was a convicted insurrectionist. He did disturb the peace. He did work against Rome and Caesar. And we also know that he was a murderer. So what Pilate is doing here is he's hoping that the people will easily see one clear choice and they'll ask for Jesus, and then Pilate will be off the hook. He can blame this decision on the people. He's put it into their hands. What he doesn't know is those religious leaders are canvassing the crowd like good politicians, and the crowd is easily influenced and whipped up into a frenzy. So read with me beginning in verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So you have this dramatic picture of righteousness and evil side by side, and to Pilate's shock, the crowd chooses evil. They choose Barabbas. He keeps asking them a question again, prompting them, showing them Jesus' innocence, and they keep replying the same way with one word, crucify, crucify. John tells us that at that point, the crowd pretty much turns on Pilate as well. Look at John 19, 12 on your verse sheet. From then on, Pilate sought to release Jesus, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate's shaky political career could come toppling down here. If he does his job and acts with justice, he'll release Jesus. The Jews will riot. They probably won't pay their taxes. And worse yet, he can be accused 
of, being, of supporting an insurrectionist. He could lose his position, he could lose his home, he could lose his life for that. So in perhaps the greatest miscarriage of justice ever, Pilate brings in a basin and he theatrically washes his hands there in front of all the people. And he steps back and he says, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of this thing you're about to do, this innocent man being killed. And he says, you see to it yourselves. He releases himself from his official responsibility, and he lets the Jewish nation decide what will happen to Jesus. I want you to look down at verse 25 in your Bible, because this is the dramatic reply. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. They're saying, we will take the blame, we will take the consequence. And you read those words and you think, what madness, what madness. Do they know what they're saying? And you need to know that historians, after the fact, have have called this the self-cursing of the Jewish nation. Because in just a few years, in 70 AD, they would collectively... Um, experience the judgment of God when Jerusalem falls after months of uh, uh, conflict with Rome, months of fighting and starvation. The majority of the citizens of Jerusalem and the majority of many, many pilgrims who were in town, they were starved, they were killed, they were captured, many were crucified. There is a famous quote, there weren't enough crosses in Jerusalem for all the Jewish people that were being crucified by Rome. That happened just 40 years later. It was a horrific thing that they claimed to let the curse be on them. So Pilate releases Barabbas, who is guilty. He orders Jesus scourged and has him delivered over to be crucified. So this marks the full rejection of Jesus. The Jewish nation has rejected him, and Pilate, representing the the Gentiles, they have also rejected Jesus at this point. Then Jesus travels this journey from the moment of condemnation all the way to the site of the cross, and it's terribly heartbreaking to read and to consider. It begins with a scourging. This was a very brutal process. They would expose the victim's back. They would lash him up to 40 times with a whip. The whip had multiple leather thongs. Each thong had a... um, a piece of shard or a bone fragment attached to the end. It was not designed just to leave whelps on the victim's back. It was designed to flay the victim's back open over and over and over again. Many times um, a victim would pass out. Sometimes they would even die before this process was finished. And as we read those words, we just have to come to terms with, they are mutilating the image of our Christ rejecting him and mutilating him. Then they mock him. The soldiers take an old, uh, an old robe, an old coat. It's either purple or scarlet, representing royalty. They put that on him. They make a fake crown out of thorns. They give him a flimsy reed as a scepter. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail means long live. So do you understand the level of mockery as they're leading him to execution and they're saying, long live the king of the Jews. They're taunting him. They continue to spit on him and beat him and lead him away to the crucifixion site. And if you're like me, you read these words and you think, how could they do it? How could the crowd shout crucify? How could the guards be so barbarous towards Jesus? And here's the answer. 
In the angry crowd and among the soldiers, we have a composite picture of human nature. And there is deep-seated hatred in the heart of man towards God and towards his son. And it's a hatred that will fight fiercely to deny his lordship because we want to be our own lord. That's how they did it. That's exactly how they did it. I want you to begin reading with me in verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, and then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him, they also reviled him in the same way. So they crucify him on the hill called Golgotha. We refer to it often by its Latin name, which is Calvary. I'm quoting here, Crucifixion was the most disgraceful and cruelest instrument of death ever invented. It was designed to cause the most prolonged anguish and suffering. And here's how it works. Um, the cross would be assembled. Each one of the criminal's hands would be stretched out and nailed, kind of bolted to the edges of that crossbar. Then the feet would be nailed to the bottom. The cross would be erected with a sign at the top that's supposed to have the criminal's charge on it. And the criminal hangs there in agony for hours, most likely undressed with their charge written over their head. It's interesting, though, they didn't write a charge over Jesus' head. They wrote a claim. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And they wrote it in three languages, so all would recognize it. The horrible process started at 9 a.m. in the morning. Already, Jesus has been through a miserable and grueling night. And immediately, a merciful person in the crowd offers Jesus wine mixed with gall. This was basically a narcotic, and it was normal for someone to offer the criminal this. It was designed to dull their senses, but as soon as Jesus tasted it, he recognized what it was, and he refused it. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He needs to be fully in control of his thoughts, fully in possession of his power, because Jesus is performing his most important kingly duty at this time. And as he hangs there in agony, the soldiers settle down at his feet. They gamble for his clothes, and they wait for him to die. And we see the abusive, reproachful language begins again. Jesus is being despised. And all this abusive, jeering words from the crowd and from the religious leaders, even from the criminals, they are all suggesting the very same thing. They're saying, get off the cross. Get off the cross. I want to remind you, weeks ago when we talked about um, Satan and the demonic world, we said the goal of Satan is always to oppose the work of God. 
So when we look closely at their words, we see the words, the desire, the hope of Satan, that Jesus would get off the cross, disobey God, and not do this redeeming work. We can look at the prophet Isaiah. His words perfectly described this. Look on your verse sheet, Isaiah 53. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We'll begin reading in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly this was the Son of God. So the sixth hour is noon and what we learn here is from noon until three o'clock, the time when the sun is normally shining at its brightest. The sun isn't shining, the world goes dark. And this is described as a continual darkness that lasted for three hours, so we can't explain it away as an eclipse. And what's happening here is Jesus is becoming the sin offering for the world, and nature is responding. One theologian said the sun refuses to shine on suffering deity. That's what's happening in the world during these three hours. It's described in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. That's what's happening. God's plan for redemption is on display on the cross at this moment. Now we have to point out this isn't God's plan B. This wasn't God's uh, unexpected reaction to the Jewish nation. This was God's plan all along. God had foreshadowed this completely in Passover. You remember they're there celebrating Passover right now, and you remember why they celebrated the Passover. Israel was in bondage to the nation of Egypt. God sent 10 plagues to get his people released. The last plague was that the firstborn of every house would die. But he told his children, sacrifice a lamb, Spread the blood of that lamb over your door, path, door post, and the angel of death will pass over you. And that's what happened, and the people were saved. Immediately after that, God implements the sacrificial system. He tells the nation of Israel, here's how you're going to live as sinful people in fellowship with me. You're going to sacrifice innocent animals to pay for your sin. You're going to offer that blood to me, and God will accept it. Even though it's an inadequate offering, God always accepted it until now. Until now when the perfect acceptable offering is being made. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not destroying Israel's old laws. He is fulfilling them completely with himself. 
1 Peter 2.24 describes it as he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So near the end of those three hours of darkness, it's three o'clock. It's the end of Jesus' offering of himself as the sin offering for the world. We see that Jesus can barely endure what is happening. He's experiencing both the deepest physical pain from the crucifixion. He's also experiencing the fullest feeling of spiritual separation from God. And you have to remember, God and Jesus were one from the beginning, and in these three hours, they are not. God has to look away from sin as Jesus takes it on. This is the climax of Jesus' anguish when he experiences broken communion with God as our sin substitute. In this agony, he cries out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And again, we hear the voice of the prophet Isaiah. Look on your verse sheets. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. Jesus is experiencing being totally forsaken by his father in this moment. And completing the transaction, paying the debt in full, redeeming the sin price for the world, Jesus, who should be exhausted and depleted at this moment, he gathers himself fully, he musters great strength, he cries out with a strong voice, not a weak voice, it is finished. It's like a cry of triumph here. He says it is finished, and then he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. And that is a very interesting way to describe death. It means he dismissed his spirit from his dying body. So we have a picture of Jesus who was in total control. He wasn't delirious. He wasn't confused. The Romans believed their crucifixion killed him. The Jews believed that their cunning killed him. But we know no one killed the king. He gave his life as an offering. He said he would do this, John 10, 17. Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is being obedient in releasing his spirit here, and nature continues to respond to this momentous act. First, we're told that the curtain in the temple rips in two. When we studied the tabernacle, we weren't learned about this curtain. You'll remember it was the curtain that created a barrier between the holy place where the presence of God was. It was the curtain that kept sinful men from approaching God's holiness. And only once a year could the high priest go into that space after an elaborate sacrifice had been made. We know that that curtain was tightly woven. We also know that it was about the thickness of a man's palm. So the reality of the curtain being torn in two from top to bottom, that signifies that God God did that work, man didn't. And it also shows us that now man can be in the presence of a holy God because Jesus has made a way. Jesus has removed all barriers. It also shows us that the world's old forms of approaching God through a sacrifice and a priest, those forms have been replaced now. 
We also are told that the earth shook and rocks were split open. In that, we see the power and the judgment of God. And we also see an indication that the earth will one day be set free from sin's curse. Since Genesis 3, the earth has also been cursed by sin, but one day that curse will be released. And we're told that graves were opened. This definitely shows Christ's triumph over death, which is the ultimate cost for sin. Um, After Christ's resurrection, we're told that some of these resurrected saints, they appeared there in Jerusalem. This is showing us that Christ is the first fruit. He's the first to be resurrected. It's showing us that there is a resurrection to come. All those spectacular signs happened, and the men who were professional executioners had never seen anything like that before. They probably couldn't number how many crucifixions they'd watched, those soldiers. But when they see all of that, they are gripped with holy fear, and they claim faith in God. Surely this was the Son of God. It's a confession of faith. It's heathens coming into um, a relationship with God in the darkest hour of the world, and it's such a picture of the power of the gospel. So Christ has completed his work here to redeem his followers. And the part we haven't talked about yet, the the disciples are hiding, they're in fear. There's a band of faithful women. These are the women who have been following Jesus since Galilee, loving him, serving him, supporting his ministry, and they stay faithful. They're there at the foot of the cross watching all of this. And now we see another disciple become emboldened and courageous. It's Joseph of Arimathea. He's a secret disciple of Jesus, but he's also a member of the Sanhedrin. He is one of the Jewish leaders. He didn't vote to have Jesus um, convicted or killed, but he has not publicly confessed his faith in Jesus, yet he comes forward. And what they're doing, they don't want their Lord to suffer any more indignity here. They know that 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 whole area would be defiled if Jesus' body remained there throughout the Sabbath. But more than that, it would be a greater injury and insult to his honor and his glory not to care for his body in death. So Joseph goes to Pilate, and he outs himself as a follower of Jesus. And he asks for Jesus' body, and Pilate grants it. Joseph takes that body. He wraps it in a linen shroud. This was a hasty burial process. It wasn't complete, but they have to hurry because it's almost sundown, which is the Jewish Sabbath. Joseph lays Jesus' body in a new tomb, and as was the custom, the last thing they did was to roll a large stone that completely covered the opening of the tomb. The women are still there. They are the witnesses to all of this. And then they all go home quickly at sundown because they're going to honor the Sabbath laws. And we've got a picture of the sun going down on what seems to be the most terrible day on earth. The next day is Saturday. That's the Sabbath. But not everyone is home like the women honoring the Sabbath laws. The religious leaders are not. They're home probably pacing, anxiously rubbing their hands together. What are we going to do about this Jesus? He said he'd be resurrected in three days. Taking care of him in crucifixion has not brought them any peace. Their anxiety continues. So they all violate the Sabbath laws, and they make their way to Pilate's home to appeal to Pilate. They ask to have a guard of Roman soldiers posted at Jesus' tomb, ensuring that nobody comes and deceives them with the idea of a resurrection. We see they're still pawns of Satan. They're still working to oppose the great work of God here. 
And if you're like me, you can look at their actions and you can be appalled and you think, I would never, I would never oppose God like that. I think it's more important for us, instead of focusing on their behavior, to focus on their belief. Or in this instance, I would say focus on their unbelief. Unbelief is a willing refusal to believe that results in a deliberate decision to disobey. I'm going to say it again. It's a willing um, refusal to believe that results in in a decision to disobey. It's a state of mind that is closed to God. It always starts with belief, ladies, because belief drives behavior. I don't think they ever started out with, we want to find an innocent man and crucify him. It started out because they refused to believe the words of God. And I want to talk about this because it's the same for us today. It starts with our belief. Do we believe that God is our powerful creator? Do we believe that he determined right and wrong? Do we believe that he will judge us for our behavior? If we get belief wrong, behavior will follow. So I'm really glad we're here. We're learning how to believe rightly. It began with their unbelief, and it just spins out of control. In all this crazy story, we're going to see the remarkable reality of the sovereign will of God. God is moving the world forward perfectly according to his sovereign plan. At the same time, he's allowing men free will. He's letting them be active. He's letting them be independent, and they're making their own choices both operating freely, but both coming under the sovereign will and the plan of God as the world moves forward according to God's plan. Finally comes Sunday morning, and in my mind, the sun is sparkling on this day. Sunday morning comes, and everything changes. This Sunday would become known later as the Lord's Day because the kingship of Jesus is confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. Read with me beginning in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So the women are back at the tomb to complete the process of preparing Jesus' body for burial. And as they're walking to that tomb, they're rubbing their hands, and they're anxiously trying to figure out, what are we going to do about that big stone? But their worry is interrupted by an earthquake and an angel and the stone being rolled back and the invitation that would change their life forever. Come and see. Come and see. He's risen. He's not here. I have to point out 
Jesus is already gone at this point. He wasn't standing on the other side of that big stone waiting for the angel to open the door from him. Jesus' resurrection totally transforms his uh, physical reality. He's not bound by physical laws or limitations anymore. Jesus has already been resurrected, and that's what they see in the empty tomb. The invitation to come and see is followed by an invitation, go and tell. Share the joyful news that Jesus is risen with the disciples. Get ready to meet him in Galilee. Now, what we know from all the Gospels is that Jesus would actually appear to them several times before they get to Galilee. But Matthew focuses on Galilee because Galilee is a special place. Galilee was home. Galilee was where the bulk of his followers were. And there would be a gathering in Galilee that would fully celebrate and confirm Jesus as the resurrected king. So Matthew emphasizes Galilee. So the women run off to the disciples with this news. And they have this amazing combination of emotions. It says they have great fear. Can you imagine? An earthquake and an angel and an empty tomb. I'd be so scared I'd shake all over. But great joy. And don't you think they were thinking, is it true? Could it really be true? Is he really alive? Almost afraid to let themselves believe. And in that agitated state, Jesus stands before them, alive, greetings. They see his body with their eyes, and they hear his voice with their ears, and they fall at his feet, and they clutch him, and they worship. This isn't a dream. This isn't a vision. This is the resurrected Jesus in front of them. And he does what Jesus always does. He calms their fear simply by his presence. And he repeats the instructions, go and tell. But he says it differently this time. He doesn't say, go and tell my disciples. He says, go tell my brothers. This is our first indication. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. They're no longer disciples. Now they can enter the household of God. They can be brothers and co-heirs with Christ because Jesus has redeemed them and made a way. So the women run off with the exciting news for Jesus' friends. At the same time, those guards at the tomb, they run off with exciting news for Jesus' enemies. And we get one more picture of these uh, Jewish law uh, keepers uh, or leaders. They're continuing in their unbelief. They immediately hatch a plan that involves lying, bribery, and conspiracy. They tell the guards, just say you fell asleep and tell him that the disciples came and stole his body away while you were sleeping. And we read that and quickly see that's pretty implausible. If they were sound asleep, how do they know what happened? How do they know it was the disciples? It's also very risky. If a Roman guard fell asleep on duty, he was... um, Uh, he could be given a death penalty for that. So what we see here is the guards become dispensable tools in this deception, just like Judas, and that's pretty tragic. So why do they want this story hushed? Because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection first is the proof that Jesus' words were true, that he was the son of God, that he was bringing the kingdom, and he said the sign of Jonah will be the last sign. After three days, I'll be resurrected. It's also proof that Jesus has overcome sin, sin's penalty, death, and hell. And sadly for these leaders, it's proof that there is a new way to live with God now. 
Read with me, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So they go to Galilee, and in the presence of Jesus, they worship because the king is reigning in this moment. And as the reigning king, he immediately gives them a commission. He reminds them that God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth, and that's why he can commission them. So based on that authority, he tells them there's kingdom work to do. And what would that work be? We need to stop and and let you know there were probably about 500 followers of Jesus there in Galilee. But the 11 disciples are standing out front as the representatives, and Jesus is speaking to them. But he is not giving this job just to the disciples. This is Jesus' kingdom work for all of his followers. This is Jesus' kingdom work for us. First, they're to go make disciples of all nations. And so again, we have to remember this is a spiritual kingdom, not a political kingdom. That means we're not going to overpower people and conscript them into service. Instead, we're going to share the good news of the gospel. We're going to share what Jesus has done. We are going to help people move from unbelief to belief and enter a relationship with God. We're going to share that with all nations all over the world. The special covenant relationship with God would not be restricted just to Israel, but would be available to all. And what strikes me in this is Christ is sending the gospel message into the whole world that hated and despised and rejected him. That's his compassion and his love. Baptism would be a part of that process. We know that baptism is just an outward sign that communicates an inward reality. It shows the world publicly that you are associated with God and Jesus and that his Holy Spirit is in you. We call that process redemption, coming to faith and publicly confessing that faith. And also teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. If you're somebody who likes to write in your Bible, I'd circle the word all. Teach them to observe all. All means nothing more and nothing less. And so Jesus is describing here an ongoing experience of every day learning to obey all of his truths. The theological word for that process is sanctification, and that's the rest of a believer's life becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like the sinful world that hates him. So Jesus clearly presents the life of a disciple here as a two-part process. There's the entry point when we come into the kingdom of God through belief in Jesus' work for us, and then there's the continuing, ongoing experience of growing in truth. Jesus never describes a disciple or a follower of his as someone who just checks the belief box and then never lets him reign as king. That's not his version of a disciple. Instead, he shows us a disciple lets Jesus reign. This passage has become known as the Great Commission, and it is a great task, but it won't be too great because it also comes with a great promise. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And I just want you to go slowly and look at those words for a minute. Always means perpetually. It means uniformly. It means on every single occasion. It means there's nowhere I can go and be outside of Jesus' presence. It means there's nothing I can do that will repel him away from me. This is a revelation of Jesus' character that really serves as the bookend for both sides of the book of Matthew. If you remember, Matthew chapter 1 began quoting the prophet that said Jesus would come and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with you. And the book closes with Jesus promising, I am with you always. We know that shortly after this meeting with the disciples, Jesus ascended to heaven. His body departed, but his presence did not because Jesus promised that his presence is with us always. So I want to just remind you of a few ways today that Jesus' presence is with you. He promises that he puts his Holy Spirit in us the moment we believe. John 14, 16 describes that Holy Spirit as the helper who will be with you forever. That's one way we experience Jesus' presence. But this is another way we experience Jesus' presence. His word right here. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the very word of God, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Every time we open this book, every time we read it and study it and hide it in our hearts and think on it and let it transform us, we are experiencing the promised presence of Jesus. And I have one other just reality of how we experience the presence of Jesus. We experience him in fellowship. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we have sweet fellowship with Jesus when we just obey his word and we experience his presence. This invisible presence of Jesus will be with his followers until the end of the age. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about um, the end times and the church age is what Jesus is talking about right here. He's talking about the church age begins right now when, in this time when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And it extends until the time when Jesus resurrects his church in the rapture and takes us out of the earth. And at that time, the invisible presence of Jesus will be exchanged for his visible and eternal presence. And we will be present with the Lord forever. It's a pretty great promise. What we see here is God is working his sovereign plan for the world, and God is giving each one of us free will. He's letting us make our own choices. So we have to stop and ask how we respond. Will we live under Jesus' reign? Will we let him be the king? There is an entry point to that. Jesus has purchased your redemption. He's offered it freely to you as a gift, but you have to receive it. You have to admit that you're just like that leper who couldn't heal himself. You're just like that blind man who didn't have spiritual eyes until Jesus gave them. You're just like the sinner, the tax collector. All these people we've seen in the book of Matthew, that's me and that's you. We are not good enough for God except because of the work Jesus gave us. So when we accept that we're not good enough for God and we accept Jesus' work on our behalf, we enter the kingdom and we serve the king. But then there's an ongoing life of discipleship that follows. We don't stop learning or growing or sharing with others about Jesus. There are no lazy disciples. 
Every single day, we keep learning to do all that he told us to do. I'm just going to be honest with you. Sometimes that's hard for me. I have a little index card that's posted on, on the wall behind my desk, and it asks a simple but a profound question. It says, do I live for Christ, or does he live for me? And I need that reminder every day because I'm inclined to get it mixed up. If he's the king, and I believe that, then I live for him. And I want you to hear this last point. I'm a lazy and a thoughtless disciple when I accept the gift of redemption, but I don't let him reign. That's just the truth. My life is his. He's purchased it. He's bought me out of slavery. He's taken the beating I deserved. He suffered the anguish of separation from God that my life has earned for me. And if I believe that, I will behave like he is the king. I learned him when I was five or six years old, and I was just singing it the whole time we studied this passage. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So ladies, my hope and my prayer is that he's your king and you let him reign. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your overwhelming, relentless love for us. We thank you that... Um, you don't look at us as despised sinners, but you look at us with compassion, and you've offered us a way to be in a love relationship with you forever. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the great gift of redemption that's available through your Son. Lord, I just pray that you can remind us every day what a tremendous gift it is, and that it was offered to us by the King, and that we would treat you like the King that you are. This is our prayer and our hope, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.